for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. If you've got a Bible and you'd like to turn to the book of Ezra, that's where we're going to be this morning. Don't worry if you haven't, I'm going to be reading some of the passage, so... You can just listen and take it in. So the book of Ezra, as you know, we're, looking at, we're drawing from both these books, Ezra and Nehemiah, and uh, you may also want to look in your own time at Haggai, Zechariah, etc., Esther as well. I'm now, having read uh, furthermore, I'm now convinced that Darius, Darius or Darius, however you pronounce his name, is the same king right the way through Ezra and Nehemiah. That's contrary to a lot of modern commentaries, uh, but it does mean that he was married to Esther, which adds an interesting flavor to the story, and that he is the queen who is sitting there in the book of Nehemiah when, she is men- when the queen is mentioned. But I'll leave you to go away and think about that one for yourself, because that adds a whole dynamic to the story which is wonderful in itself. So Ezra and uh, chapter 3, we're continuing with our series, Time to Build. Uh, So in chapter 3, in fact, let's jump back to verse 68 of the previous chapter. When they arrived at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the family leaders made voluntary offerings towards the rebuilding of God's temple on its original site. And each leader gave as much as he could, and the total of their gifts came to 61,000 gold coins, 6,250 pounds of silver, and 100 robes for the priests. And so the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, and some of the common people settled in villages near Jerusalem, and the rest of the people returned to their own towns throughout Israel. So again, just remember the big story. God created, Adam fell Uh, God calls a man, Abraham, the man becomes a family, the family becomes a nation who who were there to serve the nations of the world, to be a witness to the nations. That that nation rebels, goes cold on God and rebels, and God uh, sends them off into exile for a period of 70 years. But he had also said that that would be 70 years exactly, and they would be returning. And so we pick up the story. Here they are. They've got back to the land in early autumn, chapter 3, when the Israelites had settled in their towns and all the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. Then Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, joined his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, with his family in rebuilding the altar of the God of Israel. And they wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, as instructed in the law of Moses, the man of God. And even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar at its old site. And then they began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord each morning and evening. They celebrated the Feast of Shelters, the Festival of Shelters, as prescribed in the law, sacrificing the number of burnt offerings specified for each day of the festival. They also offered the regular burnt offerings, the offerings required for the new moon, celebrations, the annual feast was prescribed by the Lord. And the people also gave voluntary offerings to the Lord. Fifteen days before the festival of shelters began, the priests had begun to sacrifice burnt offerings to the Lord. This was even before they had started to lay the foundation of the temple. 
And then a bit later, they start laying that foundation. And in verse 10, when the builders had completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests put on their robes, took their places to blow their trumpets. The Levites, descendants of Asaph, clashed their cymbals to praise the Lord, just as King David had prescribed. And with praise and thanks, they sang this song to the Lord. He is so good. His faithful love for Israel endures forever. And then all the people gave a great shout, praising the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. But many of the older priests, the Levites and other leaders who had been seen the first temple, they wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. And the others, however, were shouting for joy. And the joyful shouting and the weeping mingled together in a loud noise that could be heard at a far distance. Wow, that's quite something, isn't it? And we're going to dig into that this morning, but let's just back up and think what we've been talking about. So far, we've considered that our God reigns. Our God reigns. He is sovereign, not only over Israel, but he is sovereign over the nations of the world. He is a God of covenant. He's faithful, and he will fulfill his purposes. So here they were. They were his people. After 70 years, they're back in the land. God is true to his word. Then the need for all hands to be on deck. And you've got those various lists at the beginning, which lists a whole lot of people. And I know sometimes we, we kind of want to jump those things and say, you know, someone was talking to me the other day about all the begats in the Bible. Do you read all the begats? Well, you know, God put them there for a reason, because people are important. Not just the main guys like Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. Everybody is important. And uh, whatever our role is, we are important. We're not just accidental bit players carried along by some external force pawns in the unfolding drama of history over which we've no control, as Karl Marx said. Uh, But we are people called by God to act, to be movers and shakers of this world systems. Because we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are participants in the kingdom of God. And then we looked at the fact that we, the importance of passion and prayer in relation to God's purposes. That though God is sovereign and he can do it like that, he actually calls us to engage with his purposes through prayer. And how important prayer is. How important personal prayer is. How important the, the church prayer meeting is. Ezra prayed, Nehemiah prayed, the people prayed. As you look through those two books, they, they prayed. Prayer engages us with God and his purposes. Amen? So how's your prayer life? How are you praying? Are you really on the front foot in prayer or are you on the back foot? Oh, well, I pray when the Spirit leads me. I tell you what, if I wait and pray when the Spirit leads me, I will never pray apart from on a rare occasion. We have to stir ourselves, even when we don't feel like it. We stir ourselves to prayer. And the enemy knows how important prayer is, and so he'll be the one who's trying to stop you. So make, make that important. Prayer engages us with God and his purposes. So this morning, we're looking at keeping the main thing the main thing. But what is the main thing? What is this thing that we're talking about? Now, it's interesting. I've had various discussions when people have looked at this, uh, this uh, sermon title and said, well, what is the main thing? And so I've kind of, yeah, it's been interesting just to hear different people thinking about what the main thing is. What is the main thing in your life? What should the main thing be? What should the main thing for us be? So it's keeping the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is this, the worship of God. 
It's keeping God central. It is seeking His presence. It is being a presence-oriented people before anything else. Yes? Are you with me? Say, before anything else. Turn to the person next to you and say, before anything else. Before your work. Before the golf. (laughs) It's before anything else. Before the big decisions of life. Worship. Being in the presence of God. Worship is central to the life of God's people. Worship is what gives us our identity as the people of God. Who we are is in relation to who or what we worship. What the center stage is in our lives. Who is on that stage? Worship is what guides our purpose. So, in looking at this book of Ezra and Nehemiah, these two books, it is not Israel as a nation that is the focus here, but Israel as a worshipping community. And we need to understand that. It's Israel as a worshipping community. Because that, that is what they were called to be from the very beginning. And we need to understand that. That is so, so important. They had grown comfortable in Babylon. They were sedated by the, the culture of the day. And many had compromised their religious convictions. You had people who stood out like Daniel and his friends. But there was a lot of compromise going on. Many had grown comfortable. And it had required the stirring of God's Spirit, first of all, on Cyrus, as we read at the end of Chronicles 2 and the beginning of, of chapter 1 in Ezra. God stirred the spirit of this man. Stirred the spirit of the man to allow the Jews to go back to their homeland. But it also required God to stir His people, to come upon them and to stir them in resp- and to get a response from them. And so that you see that in 1, 1 and 1 verse 5. So God stirs Cyrus, he stirs his people in order to bring them back to the land that had been their promise. They had returned, though, a somewhat dispirited group. It was a life and death struggle with regard to their faith. Having lived in a a pagan culture for 70 years, the, the question over them was this, could they recover their spiritual edge? Could they recover that edge that God had had for them in his purpose in calling them? How could they become again the people who God had called them to be? They had been dispersed into this foreign nation and across nations. Who were they now? How could they be the people of God? What they were going back to? What was it? What did it look like? What should it look like? Could they recover their spiritual edge? Could they become the people that God intended them to be? And the answer to that was yes. And it was through worship. It was through worship. It was through encounter with God. Worship would forge them once again into the people in whom God dwells, God speaks, and God acts. Not only for their blessing, but for the blessing of the nations. That was the call of God that was upon them. And brothers and sisters, that's the call of God that is upon us. To be a people who are not only blessed ourselves and enjoying the Lord, but a people who will be a blessing to the nations, a blessing to our neighbor, a blessing to our family, a blessing in our workplace, a blessing wherever God has placed us. Maybe 
you are in such a situation. You are discouraged. You are dispirited. You've lost your sense of direction. Perhaps something has happened to you. You knew a day when there was, there was blessing. There was great encouragement. But today, it seems like, I don't know where that is. I'm not even sure where God is. I'm not even sure what God is doing. The best thing that you can do is worship God. The best thing that you can do is worship God. And you know, as we said about prayer earlier, the enemy will keep you away from it. Because he knows the power of worship. He used to once lead the angelic host. And then he thought he was bigger than God. And he took a whole load of angels with him. And today he likes to take people out of the presence of God. He likes to stop them from worshipping God because he knows the power of a God encounter. So, number one, if you're making notes, we need to understand that worship is intrinsic or essential to our destiny. Without worship, we won't know who we are because we won't be meeting the God who made us and who redeemed us and calls us to himself. It's intrinsic to our destiny. You see, worship, there's some truth in the statement. There's an old statement, isn't there? We are what we worship. That doesn't mean we become God, but in many ways, what we worship fashions us. I mean, you, you think for a moment of the football fan. Now, I'm, I'm not thinking of the one who sits in the chair and just watches the television. That's the kind of football fan I am. You know, I will sit in the, 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 in the seat and watch it on the television. I'm thinking of the purest football fan who has the season ticket and who will go there. And not only does he go there, he, you know, he or she, they wear the stuff, don't they? They wear, they wear the right stuff. They've got the, they, they've got the scarf. And, and you can't stop them talking about their club, can you, football fans? Well, I thought there were more football fans in here than that. <laughs> You're all trying to keep silent now. Okay. But, you know, in many ways we are shaped by what we worship. And there is a sense that a, a, a person who is a football fan worships their club. They, they, they think they're the greatest club upon the, on the face of the earth. You know, and, and, and they will support them in every way they can. And in some way, what they worship fashions their lives. The same thing could be said of the train enthusiast. And so many, many different things. We, we are, in a sense, what we worship. You see, what, what takes number one place in our lives in some way shapes us, in some way uh, guides our actions and our destiny. So worship is intrinsic to our destiny. So for Israel to understand who they were and what they were about required the restoration of corporate worship. Some of you may be familiar with the old catechism which says, what's the chief end of man? That's a good question. What is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man is this, to, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And John Piper has done a good one in this, on this because I, I think he's right in saying that, that when, they, when they wrote that all those years ago, they didn't say, well, it's to glorify God in some way now. One day we'll get to enjoy him forever. Actually, what it means is to glorify God by enjoying him now and forever. So the question this morning is, do you enjoy God? Because at the end of the day, you will glorify what you enjoy. Isn't that right? You will glorify what you enjoy. And God made us to enjoy him. And, 
And the gospel, as Paul literally translates it, is the gospel of the glory of the happy God. God is not a miserable, out-of-date guy in the heavens wearing a long beard who doesn't know how to connect with you and I in the 21st century. He is a happy God. And that happiness is revealed in his love to us in sending Jesus to be our saviour. Because God wants us to reconnect with him. To, to, to know where the source of true happiness is. That it flows from God himself who made us for himself and for his glory. So we glorify God by enjoying him now and forever. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 18, he talks about beholding the glory of the Lord. Just being in his presence and beholding his glory. When I pray, I, I, it, it's much easier to get on what, onto my, my needs, my, my requests, to be still and just to be in his presence. Just to know him. Just to be with him. To behold his glory. Like the psalmist says, I, I've seen your glory in the sanctuary. And I long for that. That's where I want to be. I long for that. And then he says, you know, as you behold that glory, we are changed. You can't get into the presence of God and meet God and come away and be the same person. Because an encounter with God changes us. It had a massive impact on Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah encounters God, holy, 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 the holiness of God. And, whoa, you know, I'm, I'm undone. God meets him and changes him. We can't encounter God and stay the same. You can see that in so many characters in Scripture. Jack, he said, worship changes the worshipper into the image of the one worship. Let's say that together. It's up on the screen there. Worship changes the worshipper into the image of the one worshipped. God made us in his image, but... When man sinned and fell short of the glory of God, something of that image was marred, was lost. It's still there, but it's been marred. But when, through the gospel, through knowing Jesus, through being in his presence, that image can be restored. That's wonderful, isn't it? And God wants that for every one of us. For every one of us. He wants us to carry his likeness. Number two, we need to make worship the number one priority. I don't know whether you noticed in that reading that we did what was going on there. Ezra tells them that the first thing they they needed to do was build the altar. Come back again to chapter 3, verse 1, in early autumn, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose or with one accord. Unity is so important. Scripture says, the psalmist says, blessed are those who dwell together in unity because their God commands the blessing. And there's power in unity. And then in verse 2, then Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, joined his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, with his family in rebuilding the altar of the God of Israel. First priority was to rebuild the altar. Not the walls, not the temple itself, but the altar. The place of sacrifice, the place of offering, the place of encounter where God and man meet. 
God has done that for us in Jesus. That's where we meet God, in Jesus, isn't it? He is both the altar and the sacrifice. And that's wonderful. We come to him as our all in all, our saviour. So after listing those who had returned, the writer says that they set out to build the altar of the God of Israel. And we need to notice that. In Babylon, they had been surrounded by many gods. There wasn't just, there's, theirs wasn't just another god among a whole pantheon of gods. This one was the, the one true and living God, not some made God with no power, but the one who had powerfully made himself known and created the heavens and the earth, put the stars and the galaxies into space. It was a day of clarity. It was a day of decision. It was a day of commitment for them. They could have said, this is a new day. We're in a new generation. We've advanced. Things have moved on. We've been to Babylon and seen that there's not just our God, there's a whole lot of other gods. So let, let's worship a pantheon of gods. Does it really matter? And the answer is, it does. Scripture very clearly says that there is only one God. That there can only be one God. You can't have an amalgamation of gods. There is only one way, and that is Jesus. And so we need to make worship the number one priority. Let me ask you this morning, what priority does worship have in your life? What place does it have at home? What place does it have in your church life? How important is it to you? Thirdly, we need to learn to worship when there's nothing there. This one's a hard one. We need to learn to worship when there's nothing there. So there they are. They've gone back to Israel. They've gone back to Jerusalem, and it's rubble. There's nothing there. Nothing there. I like it where it says in chapter 2, verse 68, when they arrived at the temple of the Lord, and I think, I look at that and read, hang on a minute, the temple's not there. But it says, when they arrived at the temple of the Lord. But it's not there. Do you see what I'm saying? There's something in that, isn't there? As soon as they came to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem to erect it, but it wasn't there. All they had was the word. All they had was the word, but they came in faith. You see, it wasn't necessarily the physical stones that made the reality. It was their encounter with God itself, because God is spirit. And those who worship him worship in spirit and in truth. Sometimes when we we go to worship, it may seem as, as though there's nothing there. Have you ever come to church and thought, I just don't feel like it? Maybe life is just like a desert at the moment. Maybe it's just so tough there, there, there is, if you like, there's nothing there. You don't feel anything. What do you do in those situations? You trust the word of God. And you say, I have this word, and I'm going to get into the presence of God. They went up, and so must we. We go up in faith, not on what we see or what we feel. It's easy when it all looks right and good and everything feels Great. 
But we need to learn to worship God when there's nothing there. And if you haven't been in that situation, I don't want to be a doomsayer, but the observation of life is that we'll, there will be a day when you will. When you will feel as if there is nothing there. Why should I go? Why should I go? What's God doing for me? I don't know where he is. I just pray and it seems as though the heavens are as brass. It just seems so difficult at this moment in time. This, this problem that I'm going through. God's not coming through for me. Why should I worship him? And the answer is because of who he is. He is God. He is God. You see, we can worship God because of our gratefulness, and there's a rightness in that. There's a place for that. But there's a time when we have to learn to worship God when there's nothing there. Nothing there. And when we get to worship God in those times, we'll discover something of the power of worship that we have not discovered elsewhere. When we learn to to come without those feelings and we stir ourselves up, Think of the psalmist, if you've got your Bible open, in Psalm 63. 63 verse, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. I, uh, I earnestly search for you. My, my soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. Do you ever feel like that? When I was a young Christian and I wasn't sure how to pray, I'd get the psalms and I'd pray the psalms. And I'd look at the psalm and I'd say, hey, this psalm looks like how I feel. He's pretty down on, on, on himself. He's pretty miserable. That's how I feel. That's what I'm going to pray. So if you don't know how to pray, that's a good place to start. Get hold of the psalm that identifies with you, identify with it, and use that as your base of approaching God. And, and so here's the psalmist. He knew what it was. We, we think of what we call the sweet psalmist of Israel. And we think of the glorious psalms, the the joyful psalms, the delightful psalms. But David knew what it was to go to God when there was nothing there. He knew how to meet God when there was nothing there. And he said, you you are my God. This was his confession when there's nothing there. You are my God. That needs to be our confession. Earnestly I search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and I've gazed upon your power and your glory. So he's remembering days when he was in the sanctuary. When he was in the presence of God with others. He's remembering those days. I remember those days. And God, I want them back again. I want to be there again. I want that kind of encounter again. But here I am. I'm not giving up on you. You are my God. Earnestly will I seek you. Scripture talks about bringing the sacrifice of praise. That's praise when I don't feel like it. Praise when it costs me something. And the psalmist David said in Samuel... You find it in Chronicles as well. He says that I won't bring anything that doesn't cost me anything. Putting it in modern language. And so we need to learn to worship when there's nothing there. Number four, we need to learn to worship when the enemy surrounds us. Back into Ezra. Ezra chapter 3 and verse 3. I don't know whether you notice the words there. 
So there we are. Uh, verse 2, Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, joined his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, with his family in rebuilding the altar of the God of Israel. They wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, as instructed in the law of Moses, the man of God. And even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar at its old site. So not only was there nothing there, they were surrounded by their enemies. Whoa, hang on a minute. It's one thing to do it when there's nothing there. It's another thing to do it when the enemy's crowding in on me. Can I really do it then? Is it really, really possible? Their enemies were around them on every side. And listen to this. God wasn't about to remove them. Oh. Oh. But God, I want you to remove all my enemies so I can live easier, live more comfortably. God doesn't always remove our enemies. He allows them to remain there for a reason. And he did that with Israel. And what they were to learn was that God was their protector. God was their protector. They could trust in him. With official permission from their captors, they were back in the land, envisioning restoration and renewal. But the local residents weren't too pleased, and they had to contend with them. They would have to learn to worship God in the midst of their enemies. I love this slide. Found it on the, on the internet. Confuse the enemy. Next time you start to worry, begin to worship instead. Confuse the enemy. Next time he's surrounding you, pushing, coming in on every side, worship God instead. Don't glorify the enemy by giving him the time that he wants you to give him, which is the, the, the opposite, isn't it? When we don't worship God, who are we giving time to? We're giving time to the enemy. Wow. Think of some of those songs, you know, when the music fades and all is taken away. When I'm found in the desert place and though I walk through the wilderness. Their songs are a bit like some of the Psalms, aren't they? Sacrifice of praise. When we need to learn to worship when the enemy surrounds us. So, Psalm 27, if you've got your Bibles and you'd like to go there. Psalmist, Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. So why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger. So why should I tremble? When evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. And though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I'm attacked, I will remain confident. This one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. That was David's longing. It wasn't there. And there were enemies surrounding them, him. But he says, you are my God. I will seek you. 
He says, yes, there are enemies, but I will not be afraid because you are my God. You are my protector. Hallelujah. So number five, we need to worship. We need to understand the importance and power of gathered worship. Corporate worship is vitally important. There's something about an act of worship like this when we're together that you can't get on your own. Yes, we need to seek God for ourselves. We need to worship God for ourselves. But we also need to learn the importance of gathered worship. And that's one of the reasons why the enemy will seek to distract us and divert us and and take us away from the gathering of the church because he knows the power of gathered worship. In the Old Testament, the the temple was the focal focal point. The psalmist spoke of his longing to be with the saints in worship. Psalm 84 verse 2, I long, yes I faint with longing for the courts of the Lord. I wonder if that's how you feel during the week. Oh, I can't wait to be with the people of God on Sunday. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that, that should be our attitude. That should be our attitude because this was David's attitude. I want to be there where the saints are, where the people of God are. I want to be in the temple with them, worshipping and praising the Lord. You see in the Old Testament how they, they, they would gather. They would gather together at different seasons, different times. And the gathered community is right there in the New Testament in its thinking and its teaching. The letters are, are largely addressed, we must remember, to churches, not individuals. In our age of individualism, we tend to treat them as individual words to each one of us. But they, they are written to churches. And so the, the letters, you think of the letter to Hebrews, it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is. Be there, the writers say. It's important that you are there. You never know what's going to happen. You never know when God's going to come down or speak in a particular way. But whatever, God will always be there and will always be doing something. When Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, we very often think of that personally. I've got to be filled with the Spirit. But actually, he's writing to a church community. Church, be filled with the Spirit when you gather together. Be open to and responsive to the Holy Spirit corporately. He's addressing the gathered community of God's people. And we could say a whole lot more there because the New Testament is just packed with the importance of of church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, Jesus calls us to gather together and uh, they are special times. Times that you don't get on your own. You won't get them when you're out walking the dog or down at the coast. As much as you can meet God in times like that, there's something about us gathering together to meet, meeting together. It's something about the witness too that we are in the community and that we are also to the principalities and the powers. There's something very dynamic in gathered worship. God presences himself in a special way among his people. We are living stones being built into a holy temple which God, in which God dwells by his spirit. And then the synagogue. So the history of synagogue starts around this time in Ezra and Nehemiah. After their arrival back in the land, God not only ordains the restoration of the temple, but he also institutes the synagogue, and it becomes part of their their focus. So they have the temple, and they have the synagogue. The focus of worship in the villages, 
And it becomes the main way of establishing a, a new culture centered around the family, the synagogue, the community. And it would also help the transition that had happened hundreds of years later when we encounter Jesus coming in human flesh. So they have the temple and they have the synagogue. And in a church like ours, what compares to that, I would say, is our community groups. So we have the large gathering, and that's vitally important. But then we have smaller gatherings as well, which enable us to connect with God together in a more relational environment, to get to know one another, to to love and to care for one another, to watch over one another, to, to speak into one another's lives, to help one another on the journey, to help one another understand what it means to be the kingdom culture in our day and age and how we express that in our homes and in our workplaces. So there's a question for you. As a church, we we believe that they are vitally important. And our, our encouragement would be to every member, indeed to everyone, to be connected to a group. We know that there are challenges, work challenges, our schedules in this day and age, but... If you're connected to a group, you're connected to the church in a vital way. And so we want to encourage you. We, we encourage you to be connected to a group, even if you can only make it once a month. That's better than not at all. Our desire is to see everyone connected in because it comes away, it's part of the pastoral care of the community. It's where we grow more. It's a place where we can... Learn to experiment, as it were, in non-threatening environments, in talking, in sharing, in praying, in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, etc. Wow. Let's draw to a close, shall we? Maybe the band can come up and just prepare to, to follow on in just a moment. The qualities of worship, what are they? They are submission and sacrifice. Here I am, Lord. Here I am. Here I am. Would you stand? Submission and sacrifice. You know, we're living in a day when we are sensing more of God's stirrings. And as God stirred Cyrus and as he stirred the people to return to the land. He's stirring us today for a new thing. Do you sense those stirrings of His Spirit within your heart and life? I want to encourage you to respond to that. To not sit on it and just wait. God stirs, but we have a duty to respond to what He's saying, to what He's doing. Submission is our part in worship where we come before Almighty God, before we come before our Father and we say, here I am. Here I am. I worship you. I delight in you. You are everything. And you are everything to me. God, I bless your name. I bless your name when there is nothing. I lift you up when everything has been taken away when the music fades I I lift you up in my life I honour you because you are still God and you are on the throne and you're on the throne of my life I may not understand what you're doing but you are there and I worship you I worship you 
when I, I feel the enemy all around me pressing in on every side and I shut my voice, uh, I shut my ears to the voice of the enemy. I tune out the voice of the enemy and I tune into you, O oh God. And I say, God, it's you who are everything, not the enemy. You are the one who commands my destiny. You are the Lord of my life. I worship you, Lord God. I worship you in the midst of my enemies. I honor you. I praise your matchless name. Oswald Chambers said, your priorities must be God first, God second, God third, (laughs) until your life is continually face to face with God. Let's come and worship him, shall we? Let's lift up his name. Let's let's open our hearts. Let's come in surrender. The heart of worship is Jesus himself. It's not you, it's Jesus. Let's come and worship.